Hey guys, this is Emmett, and this is your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. I am here with Canada Mike. What's up? Not too much, not too much. Looking forward to chatting tonight. And this is, uh, this is another nice vegetables episode for you guys. So tonight we are talking about, well, I'm going to ask dumb questions, and Canada Mike is going to explain how modeling things works. I'm an enumerate liberal arts major, so he's going to be able to break this down for me. And the first question I have is maybe the fir- like maybe the most important one of the night, which is, Mike, what the fuck is a model? That's a very good question. So a model can really be all kinds of things, but from the point of view of statistics, mm-hmm. normally what we're talking about is a mathematical construct that uh, generates uh, data that look like observations. Okay, so it's it, you can think of it as a as a game or an algorithm or you know this uh, fundamentally epistemic construct that emulates some aspect of a phenomenon. And normally, what it is is, is a, a set of mathematical relations that output. Uh, something that looks like the data that you would collect in the field. And so in doing so, it offers um, an explanation for how those data were produced. And basically, this is the means by which we both test scientific theories, quantitative scientific theories, as well as uh, attempt to predict and control natural phenomena. Um, all of those things are, are model-based. So um, e- e- that's not to say that there are not many other kinds of models. You know, you can think of like very simple kinds of, like for instance, in medicine, we see symptomatic correlates of disease, right? So you get mm-hmm. someone sick coming in through the door, you see a symptom. You're not necessarily quantitating anything, but you have a, a mental model of their symptomology and how it corresponds to their physiological state. Hmm. So that's that's kind of outside of the scope of what we'll be talking about today. But for the most part, the models that we're concerned with, and certainly the models that are referred to typically by policymakers are these mathematical constructs. Okay. So it's clear to me, since I do work in energy advocacy and modelers are sort of the bane of that area of like, let's say energy Twitter's existence yeah. because they're like sophist par excellence. Yeah. Right. So they'll be like, look, actually the grid is fine because I've adjusted my model so that it looks fine. Yeah. And you're like, okay, but like ERCOT in Texas is like experiencing danger levels like every other day yeah so what are the uses and abuses of modeling like how if someone like me is coming into contact with it like how do i sort the good from the bad what is like an ethics of modeling or what have Mm -hmm. you like how should we approach it so my my commitments in this area are are with paul firebend who is a very good philosopher of science on this point and this is this is something that I, I come to honestly. I mean, I'm a primarily, you know, my background is as as a bench worker. 
and this so this isn't you know like a purely theoretical kind of posture mm -hmm. for me like and bench worker means for the uninitiated the, the, i'm i you know my my scientific background for the most part was doing experiments right collecting data chopping up animals <laughs> you know, yeah, right. looking at looking at their their cells you know it was was that kind of thing and and i would have to say that i really did not understand what i was doing or what others were doing um, until I read Fire Abin carefully. So to, to this point um, about, you know, uh, modeling sophistry, I mean, Fire Abin had this nailed. So he, he describes um, this kind of scientific personage, which he dubs the crank in his uh, philosophical papers. And what he says about this is that the distinction between the crank and the respectable thinker lies in the research that is done once a certain point of view is adopted. The crank usually is content with defending the point of view in its original, undeveloped, metaphysical form, and he is not prepared to test its usefulness in all those cases which seem to favor the opponent, or even to admit that there exists a problem. It is this further investigation, the details of it, the knowledge of the difficulties, of the general state of knowledge, the recognition of objections, which distinguishes the respectable thinker from the crank. The original content of his theory does not. So we see here already, you know, this kind of, it's very obvious, you know, with, with some, some modelers that this is what they're doing, right? They have a point of view, they're determined to uphold that point of view, and they're going to do that by, you know, endlessly modifying the uh, details of the point of view that they have as expressed in the model without ever actually acknowledging that there, there are better alternatives, right? That there are different models that would lead you to different conclusions that are in fact better explanations for the data. Okay. So in other words, what they're doing is they have ceased interacting with the phenomenal world and are instead playing within the game of their model. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and so, I mean, the, the rule of thumb here for me is that you should be suspicious anytime that someone advances a single model. So if, if you're being presented with the output of a single model as the explanation for a, a phenomenon, you're probably being sold something. And what you would like to see minimally is uh, an one uh, alternative model that expresses a significant, interesting, um, perhaps metaphysically different explanation for the phenomenon. So if you, if you don't have any alternatives, it's very difficult to understand like what the quality of a model actually is. Um, right. And, you know, we, we have to understand here that the art of modeling, and it is an art, can lead you into places where um, you're doing this kind of endless modification of the same model. And you can do that and produce apparently good explanations for um, uh, some data set mm -hmm. without actually ever getting at the underlying uh, causal structure of the phenomenon, um, because you're just capturing, let's say, more and more features of the, the noise that's present in the data set or something like that. So the, that kind of problem is generally called overfitting. And we see that all the time. I mean, you see people just constantly um, adding to the complexity of their models in order to get around you know, these kinds of counterexamples that they have or to make the, make the model just look better in general. Right. So what's a good example of a model? Is there anything from the past, like with COVID or whatever that has come out that was like forwarded as like the 
model for anything that you can recall or is there a readily available exa- example listeners might be familiar with? COVID's a good one. I mean, the typical models that are used here are usually they're called SEIR models. So it's like susceptible, exposed, infected, recovered. Those are like kind of the four categories um, that a population is assigned into. And then there are some um, constants that are given for the movement between those categories, right? Um, And in general, those are the kinds of models that were being used um, to predict very dire kinds of outcomes at the start of the pandemic. I mean, people will remember perhaps uh, Neil Ferguson's models out of the Imperial College group in the UK. Uh, we're predicting just like, you know, insane death waves everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, those those models generally were not tested against other kinds of models that introduce, in particular, uh, modifications to the uh, rate at which people move between those categories based on changing behavior. So in other words, as people are moving into infected, the infected category, the behavior of people changes because they're aware of this, right? So the kinds of predictions for these massive waves of infections and massive waves of deaths didn't materialize, at least in part because the model doesn't acknowledge the, the reflexivity that's present Um, within a human society, particularly when people are being presented with that kind of modeling result, right? So in fact, like the the presentation of the SEIR output will modify people's behavior in such a way that it will uh, attenuate the level of infection that's actually achieved, right? So, and when you compare the model uh, output for models that actually do incorporate changing behavior, you know, people I, in, in many cases, you know, whether or not like something like a mask works, it does serve as a signal to everyone that you should, you know, maintain distance, decrease social interaction frequency, these kinds of things. And that will naturally reduce the rate of infection. Um, so, you know, an, an SEIR model can't capture that without modification. And in general, uh, a lot of those modelers were simply not doing comparisons between, you know, like other plausible models that, you know, include those kinds of behavioral effects, for instance. So that's an example. Gotcha. And, I mean, really, this this gets to kind of the central point that uh, Feyerabend has. Okay, so he's, he's in many cases, uh, developing this concept of counter uh, induction. So this is his, his idea about um, how induction actually works in, in the scientific in scientific practice. So he he kind of elaborates on this in Against Method. Um, and he says, it emerges that the evidence that might refute a theory can often be unearthed only with the help of an incompatible alternative. The advice, which goes back to Newton and is which is still very popular today, to use alternatives only when refutations have already discredited the orthodox theory puts the cart before the horse. Also, some of the most important formal properties of a theory are found by contrast and not by analysis. A scientist who wishes to maximize the empirical content of the views he holds and who wishes to understand them as clearly as he possibly can must therefore introduce other views. That is, he must adopt a pluralistic methodology. He must compare ideas with other ideas rather than with experience and he must try to improve rather than discard the views that have failed in the competition. Okay, so this is 
a way of expressing the the need for model comparison, right? If you if you're coming with just one model, you're not doing any of these things, right? You need to look at incompatible alternatives that uh, express different views on how uh, some observation set was generated in order to determine the relative quality of those views. It's completely trivial to produce a, a model fit for a single model. Any model can produce a fit to some data. Not necessarily a good fit, but it can look like a good fit if you present it in a certain way. And if you don't present any alternatives, it's very difficult to tell. Like, is this a good model? Is this a good explanation? Is it spurious? Are there better uh, ways of interpreting this? Um, so you really, you really need to do that. And this, this goes to sort of Fire Evans' central point, uh, which is, you know, that scientific change or revolutions consist in the overturning of one metaphysical take on reality for another. So scientists are basically engaged in a social process where they're making claims to orthodoxy using metaphysical arguments. And Feyerabend's point is that they're like, this process is not rule bound. Okay, so there, I mean, it's gloves off in the scientific domain in terms of how those metaphysical arguments proceed. So he uses the classic example of uh, Galileo, who is arguing for Copernican heliocentrism against, you know, Aristotelian uh, scholastic kind of interpretations of, of astrophysics. And, you know, Copernican heliocentrism, as advanced by Galileo, uh, you know, substantially contradicted the available evidence. He erroneously asserted the reliability of some telescopic observations and discredited others. He made extensive use of ad hoc hypotheses like circular inertia, which is just like not, not a real thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I mean, often he was using kind of like propaganda uh, or, or uh, you know, just straight up dishonesty to advance his case. Yeah, I mean, when you read discourse on two world methods, mm -hmm. right? It's important that it's written as a dialogue, which means that it has a dramaturgical element. Totally. So usually when someone is doing that, right? Plato's very crafty about this. Mm -hmm. Well, some might call this the esoteric reading or whatever, but really what they're doing is they're adding a level, level of subtlety to the text. And there are levels of implication that has to do with the dialectic of it's dramaturgical unfolding that can lay bare some hidden strengths and weaknesses within the argument, right? Yeah. So when you read, if you haven't read Galileo, totally fine. Obviously, if you haven't, that's not an expectation, but worth remembering that that was one of the major forms he was engaging in as a way to forward some of his ideas. And, and very effectively. Very, very effectively. effectively, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and Fire Abin points this out, is, you know, that if any of the kind of standard um, ideas about what the scientific method is or ought to be were actually adhered to, Galileo would have lost the debate. Um, yeah. You know, the the simple reality is, is that the, the superior development and weight of the, uh, the scholastic tradition would have won. Um, but, you know, Galileo was a crafty guy, and on some level or another, he understood what was going on. Mm -hmm. You know, so the question really for Feyerabend is, like, if these are the conditions that we have in scientific discourse, how do we proceed, right? Because there's, there's this obvious sense in which this quickly becomes coercive, right? Like, you have mm -hmm. um, different uh, contending scientific schools and traditions that are all vying for social prestige and power and influence. 
And, you know, it's very, uh, if there, if there is no, you know, universal kind of law or criterion that vouchsafes the uh, progress of scientific theories from kind of like poor models to better ones, as uh, Fireab and uh, I think convincingly demonstrates, there's this, this kind of open question of like, well, I mean, how, how do we even prevent like a technocratic dictatorship from overtaking democracy on the basis of, of a bunch of models that aren't even really good correspondence to reality? You know, this is, is a pretty significant problem, right? So Feyerabend kind of yeah. suggests that the, the way forward is to be conscious of uh, this practice of science as a discursive um, competition between incompatible metaphysical views. Um, so these are, you know, different kinds of scientific and other cultural traditions which are impacting each other and having an influence on each other and on the surrounding uh, culture. And if we're conscious of that, then yeah, we're going to be wary of any type of coercive or dishonest measures, which are, are basically psyops, right? Like, you know, if you look at what Galileo is doing, he's doing psychological operations, he's doing metaphysical operations on his audience in order to make his um, hypotheses seem intuitively apprehensible and obvious to the, the audience, even though they had never thought of that before mm -hmm. right you know so uh we have to be be aware of this and if we are then as democratic subjects you know fireabin exhorts us to to seek open exchange basically so we're all committed in different ways to different kinds of scientific ideas and the the sort of democratic way of going about this discursive competition would be to sort of mutually enter into each other's kind of metaphysical perspectives and try to work on ways to evaluate the relative quality of those perspectives in explaining phenomena, mm -hmm. right? So I, like that, that probably sounds a little bit wishy-washy to people. So maybe, maybe we can just get really specific and, and nitty gritty and, and just talk about how you would actually compare the quality of models. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we can do this solely with reference to geometry. We can do this in a in an English uh, major friendly way. Um, and Thank you. you know, <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I think most most English majors actually will be familiar with many of these concepts already through Borges, right? So mm -hmm. uh, we we already you know probably everyone listening to this is familiar with this kind of idea that scientific models can be thought of as maps to phenomenal territories, right? Um, and I, I think that's often actually ascribed directly to Borges, but uh, he, he was um, uh, actually very familiar with uh, much earlier kinds of theoretical um, discussions mm -hmm. around this. And I think that's, that's mainly where he's drawing that from. So Alfred Korzybski in uh, 1933 book Science and Sanity. So this is, I think, 15 years before Borges said anything about this. Mm -hmm. Kor uh, Korzybski says, a map is not the territory it represents, but if correct, it has a similar structure to the territory which accounts for its usefulness. Okay, so basically here we have the two most important points that we need 
um, about about models here, right? So number one, the map's not the territory. Okay, so the the model is always an epistemic construct. It's never actually what's going on. It's never the actual fundamental reality. Okay, and th this is a significant point because there are many scientists who who don't make that distinction and who genuinely believe that you know the model is is the reality and you you see this in particular uh like for me i'm familiar with this in in biology through like daniel dennett who you know richard swenson calls him a, a neo-pythagorean um because he kind of posits this like extra material realm where like maximization functions and memes and like the laws of ecology like actually live and those are the real existence and that like mm -hmm. all of this like stuff like our minds and you know like our lives the things that are actually important to us these are epiphenomenal right they're they're just kind of like floating on the surface of this actually like pure mathematical substrate of reality okay for me that's that's completely wrong right like and and to to call that neo-pythagorean it probably actually does a disservice to the Pythagoreans, frankly, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, it's, it's very common. So number one, map is not the territory. Number two, the map is only useful if its structure is similar to the territory. Okay. And so the question really is, how do we assess whether or not the structure of a model is a good guide to the territory? Okay, so uh, again, we can think of, of models as kind of a game where the output is like simulated observations. Okay, so the quality of the model is given by the similarity of the output to the territory, which are real observations. Okay, so we have a set of simulated observations and a set of real observations. And we can score the model by asking how likely is it that these real observations that we've collected came from the distribution of that we're producing from the model, the distribution of simulated observations. Okay? So again, we're not, we're not implying that the model is literally the process which generates the observations, but this does allow us to say how similar the uh, model's output is, uh, how, how close the structure of the output is to whatever observations we're taking to construe some aspect of a real phenomenon. Okay, so we're talking. So it's about like a, it's almost like a metaphor, similarly, right? Like it clarifies one thing by looking at another, and the yeah. reason the model would be useful is because daily life or just looking at something is insanely noisy. Absolutely, right. Absolutely. So you use a model to abstract and to clarify what's happening, so that you can then return to what you were looking at, hopefully with greater depth and understanding of what is unfolding before you. Yeah, exactly. And so your, your model is going to nominate some kinds of relations between quantities that you're, you're measuring in the real world um, that imply causes, right? So um, if you're doing things correctly and you're comparing a bunch of different models with different causal structures, then you know the, the best model of the lot is going to give you probably the best insight into how the, the underlying process which creates those observations is actually structured. That's the idea. Okay. Yeah. So like, just to use an example, and I'll pull yeah. it straight from the Iliad, yeah. you know, there's the wonderful um, description of the Myrmidons, Achilles Myrmidons arriving in battle, right? And, they, mm -hmm. and the metaphor compares it to 
fog pouring over a cliff. Mm. Right. And so you learn a few things about the Myrmidons like that. First of all, they move very quickly. They move all at once. Right. Mm. And they move so quickly, in fact, that there's almost like a dust or fog around them. Right. And they're like one whole thing. Yeah. They're almost organic in their way of doing that. Okay. So we can compare that to like the Myrmidons moved like really fast cars. Right. Like totally unhelpful for trying to understand. <laughs> like how they're doing. First of all, you're assuming that they're fast in the thing. You're not demonstrating it yeah. to me. Right. Yeah. Also it's anachronistic, so it doesn't really fit. So it's yeah. surprising, but in a bad way. Yeah. You know? And while it conveys some of the same information as like a model for mm-hmm. how to understand the movement of the Myrmidons into the battlefield, it is insufficient. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I mean, I think it's, it's probably worth mentioning to that point, um, Korzybski and, and many others uh, treat language as kind of a modeling process, right? So yeah, makes um, complete sense. Yeah. Yeah. While, while we're not, you know, we're not able to assess model quality numerically, there's still that sense, right? And, and, you know, you aesthetic judgment in some way could be taken as, you know, uh, kind of, uh, maybe a subset of of model comparison in the sense that I think this is a good metaphor um, is it against you know the the fast cars one is kind of a model comparison right so in any case so I I think we, what we want to talk about here is another kind of map okay and the map uh, that we want to talk about is um, a quality surface in the model's parameter space. Okay, and now that, that sounds sounds kind of complicated, but there's a very simple example that we can use to to think about this in detail, um, which is, you know, the classic bell curve. Okay, the normal Gaussian model um, that we all know because, well, if if you went through a high school program in, you know, anywhere in North America, it's almost a certainty that at some point in one of your math or physics classes, you were asked to measure something repeatedly, and then take the mean and the standard deviation of those measurements. Okay, and what they didn't tell you probably when they were doing that is that you were using a model. Okay, and the, the mean and the standard deviation or the variance, precision, whatever, it's all the same thing of the uh, measurements are the two uh, parameters of the normal model, okay? So those are the two parameters which define the bell curve that sits over your your measurements, okay? So, you know, this is is worth thinking about just because a a normal Gaussian is actually probably the most successful model of all time. It's it's, uh, an excellent model for processes whose outcomes are the causal products of many independent events. Um, it has really deep actual like, like fundamental justification. People can look at uh, uh, Edwin T. James's probability theory textbook for that. But beyond that, we just, we just want to focus on these two parameters, okay? So we have the mean, um, which tells you the location of that bell curve along a number line. Mm-hmm. And then we have the, uh, let's say the variance, which tells you the dispersion of the observations along that, that number line. So those two parameters uh, you can think of as defining a two-dimensional Cartesian space, a two-dimensional Cartesian plane. Okay, so we have a map. We have a Cartesian map. You can say like along the x-axis or the bottom edge of the map, you have your mean values. And then on the the y-axis up the left edge of your map, you have your variance values. Okay, and 
at any given point on this two-dimensional map, you can assess the quality of the normal model, which is specified by that point. Okay, so the point get the uh, point gives you a mean and a variance, and you can say for a normal uh, Gaussian, a bell curve with a mean of this and a variance of this, what is the likelihood of me sampling these observations from that distribution? Okay, and that likelihood is is a quality function. Okay, so this this allows us to begin assessing the quality of a model. And normally, I mean, what you would do is just calculate the mean and standard deviation. And what you're doing when you're doing that is finding the best of those bell curves. And most people will stop there. They find the maximum likelihood estimate of, of the bell curve, okay? But across that two-dimensional space, you have lots of bell curves, all of which could be explanations for um, that uh, set of observations that you have, right? So we actually have a quality surface. So we have a third dimension, okay? So at any of these two-dimensional points where we go and we have a mean and a variance, we can get a likelihood, which is going to give us a height over that, that two-dimensional surface. So we're mapping, we have like a contour map, an elevation map in this parameter space of quality. Okay. And so, so the way I'm, I'm imagining this, yeah. just, just to interrupt you here is yeah. I'm looking, I'm imagining I'm looking at a Cartesian plane mm -hmm. and now I'm tilting it just so now that I have a third dimension, right? right? Because that implies perspective. Right. And I'm seeing a bunch of two points, right? Yeah. And then the things that stand tallest on those two points are the things that are the most likely are the yep. ones closest to the plane yeah, of the grid are the least likely. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Okay, so with that kind of image, we can get a sense. So the the points can be connected into a surface, right? And so what you can think of is like, for for a normal Gaussian, what you'll see if you go all across that parameter space and you're calculating the likelihood all across that parameter space, what you see is kind of a, a mound, a hill that is centered with the peak around that maximum likelihood estimate, which is the, the mean and the, the variance that you're calculating in your physics class, right? So what matters for model comparison is the, the total size of that quality hill, okay? So in a Bayesian context, we call that the model evidence. And a good model will have a big hill. And over much of that parameter space, uh, it will be high, like a really high, like Mesa or plateau, or like a really big uh, mound or many mounds if it's a polymodal uh, distribution. That's, that's something else. But and a bad model will be, you know, as you say, close to that plane, right? Uh, like flat rolling planes, or perhaps like just very narrow spires. Like there are tiny little areas of the parameter space where the model is a good explanation. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the parameter space, the models, eh, not so good. Right. So, so that, let me do an example of something that this is a predictive model, right? Sure. But it's so a little bit different, but I think this might be a good example. So people have heard me talk about this guy called Mark Z. Jacobson on the podcast before. Mm -hmm. Mark Z. Jacobson is his tenure at Stanford, I believe. And Mark Z. Jacobson wrote a paper on which the original Green New Deal is based that we could with hydro, wind, and solar mm -hmm. only 
like replace power generation in America or something like that. Right. Right. Okay. So people took a look at the numbers and they were just like, well, how likely is this? Mm -hmm. Right. If we did this and where the hill was very small, it ended up being around hydro. Why? Because he'd fudged the numbers. It turns out we almost have as much hydro as we can possibly get. So Mm -hmm. to factor them in at a high level is to mess up the likelihood of the model being correct. Right. Absolutely. And when they went, they basically wrote a paper in response and said, this is wrong. He sued the guys that wrote that they eventually won good but he still has tenure yeah yeah right (laughs) right yeah nice right so yeah so i just wanted to bring that in as an example like if if people are having a hard time picturing or trying to understand what that might mean in terms of like likelihood or efficacy yeah and that's 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 a firebending crank right so he's got one hundred percent and and probably what he's done is selected a single parameterization, right? So he's doing he's doing the calculating the the mean and the variance, right? Um, uh, for the normal Gaussian, he's just going to the top of a hill, probably the hill that he likes that it, you know is the one that supports his hypothesis. He's selected his sampling. If he's done any sampling, some people just kind of like arbitrarily choose a parameterization, which is, you know, I, I mean, it's just absurd, right? But the, the modeling practices are, are, are highly variable, let's say. Um, and, and many people have, let's say, high tolerance for bad acumen in this, in this area. But, you know, okay, so from, from what I think of as a, as a more rigorous, fundamentally justified, you know, Bayesian perspective, what I'm interested in is the, the total mass of that hill. Okay, and I don't, I don't really care about, you know, necessarily what particular parameters make the model look good. What I want to know is for all the parameters that, that I can sample over, for all of that whole space that I can sample over, is the model generally good or not? And, you know, how good relative to another model, right? So basically... You know, this this gets into sampling theory. We won't dwell on this too much, but you know, to to actually ascertain the size and shape of that hill, what we want to do is take walks over the hill, basically. So we select a place to start um, randomly on the map, and we just start walking uphill. And now and then we take a sample and we measure our altitude over you know the ground where we started. And over many such walks, we can approximate the, the shape of the uh, hill of the evidence, and therefore its, its total mass. Okay, so this is, this is how we would estimate the quality of a model, by getting the, the total mass of that hill or hills or the landscape, right? And that, that describes basically Monte Carlo sampling. That's, that's what I'm talking about. So from, from a Bayesian perspective, I mean, we can, we can offer kind of most of the, the things, explanations for most of the things that we talk about in probability theory in, in, the, in these terms, in terms of this map of, of a quality hill, okay? So like, for instance, our priors are going to be the boundaries of the map, okay, which is often called a sampling box, something like that. Um, and also the density of the starting positions that we select for our walk. Okay, so inherently all model comparison is going to be subjective. There's no purely objective way to do this. You have to select an arbitrary sampling box. It has to be finite. You can't sample over infinite space. 
And you're also going to select, you know, some kind of distribution within that sampling box for where you're going to start your walks. Okay. And so people who are really concerned about objectivity will typically take like a uniform prior. So they'll, they'll sample completely randomly over, over the, the map. If you have an idea of where the hill already is, you don't have to do that. You can start more selectively near the hill, which can help. But that's, that's basically what we mean by a prior. And so model evidence and you know, model quality are dependent on what you think you already know. People who you know, say, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm an objective frequentist. Like, I don't believe in all this like, prior stuff. They're, they're still doing this by selecting a sampling box. Okay? And, and no matter what, you have to, you have to do that. Okay? So this is one way that you can jigger with the, the results of a particular model you know, is to carefully select a, a sampling box and a prior distribution that makes the model look good. Okay, so it's something that we have to be aware of. So what is the quality function that actually gives us the likelihood of some point in parameter space? That's the model itself. Okay, that's, that's what relates the, the data to the model. That's how we determine for any given parameterization how good that parameterization is at explaining the data that we have. Okay, so fundamentally the quality of our model depends on the data that we have as well. Okay, so data selection is very important. Um, and this is another way of jiggering with models, right? You select the data that makes the model look good. Okay, we have to be careful, right? You, and, and we have to look at all of these things when we're assessing how, how people are, are modeling, right? Okay, from a Bayesian perspective, the posterior is the shape of the hill, okay? So the posterior is what do we believe about the likely values of the parameters given the data? So in other words, what are the most credible estimates of the mean and the variance? for a normal Gaussian model of some measurement. And you know, so this is something that is, is very rarely uh, talked about, but if you do this consistently, what you will find is that normal Gaussians are, have, for most data sets, uh, have much more certainty in the mean dimension than in the variance dimension. So someone who's presenting you with a maximum likelihood estimate, like they just calculated the mean and the standard deviation, in, like in physics class, is massively overestimating the certainty of their estimate of variance, typically. That's typically an overfit. Okay. So that's an example of why we might care about, about posteriors. And so this is another thing we, we need to look for. When you're looking at, at model output, you always want to make sure that the person is looking at the uncertainty on their estimates of parameters and of the evidence. You should always see uncertainty on those values. If you don't, there's a problem. You know, maybe they're using an ad hoc method or something like that. And then the, the total mass of that hill, the total size of the hill is the model evidence. Okay. So let's let's bring Fireabin back in here. So model evidence is not a unitless quantity. Okay. Like we said, this depends on the data set. So the more observations that you collect, the less probable that overall data set is going to be for any given model, because you just have more observations, you have more outcomes, okay? So the more outcomes you observe, the less probable the overall data set is gonna be. So the model evidence by itself is a completely meaningless quantity, okay? And so it's only by Feyerabendian counter-induction, by comparing two models that we actually get a meaningful quality or a me meaningful quantity, which is the ratio between the evidence of two models. Okay, so 
when we're assessing the quality of a model or of any scientific explanation whatsoever, it's only ever relative. There's no such thing as an absolutely good explanation or model. There, there are models that are better than others, and that's it. <laughs> and it, it depends on what your application is. It depends on what the data set mm-hmm. you're trying to explain is. It depends what you're trying to predict, okay? So basically, in order to not be a crank, right, what we need to understand is that we need multiple models to compare and that our qualities are always going to be relative to the other set of models uh, that we have. So it's very, very important epistemically for us to maintain like the maximum diversity of models that we have access to and never to discard uh, like a previous explanation that like people are poo-pooing like oh this is no longer orthodox this is no longer standard whatever like that is raw material for you to compare uh, different metaphysical views on uh, how this process is arranged causally okay so this is so diversity breeds robustness absolutely Absolutely. And so a pluralistic methodology, as Feyerabin says, you know, this kind of openness to many different kinds of explanations and, and openness to the idea that there's, there's no correct explanation, right? There's no real model that actually generated that data, right? But for certain purposes, there are better models and worse models, right? Um, and so, I mean, just to continue, uh, with a final note about, you know, normal Gaussian models, um, you know, a, a lot of the quantities that listeners of, of this podcast may be interested in. Um, so let's say like uh, population sizes or the size of industries or um, the distribution of stock prices. It turns out or that export uh, import calculations between yeah, countries or something like that. For sure. Many of those things are better modeled log normally than normally okay and so what what that means is that the the normal distribution is actually in log space so you fit a normal model to the logarithm of the data okay and so ba- the the easiest way to think of this is that blow out the right side of a normal distribution of a bell curve extend the right uh tail of that of that normal distribution way out there so you have like some really big uh observations so this is common in in any kind of process where there's like small additive increases over time you know population stock prices these kinds of things um those those processes tend to be better modeled log normally okay so even though a normal model is tends to be really good model a default kind of model to go to if you actually compare the overall evidence for uh, a log normal distribution um the log normal distribution tends to be better now what you'll what you'll hear people say is like stock prices are distributed log log normally and not normally implying that like the the actual process uh, by which stock prices are, are generated is like some kind of log normal distribution. Okay, so we have to be careful. It's that's that's not really it. It's just that log normal distributions are better models. They're better better toys to represent the massively complex yeah. process. Yeah, what's working. happening in the, what's happening in the stock? Right, exactly. Right, exactly. It's not the thing itself. It's the best lens through which to look at the thing. Right. So, I mean, I think that's, that's fine as a, as a kind of brief description of like, at least where I think, you know, we need to go. I mean, you know, Emmett, I, one thing that I like that you're 
you know, talking about frequently is this kind of idea of engineering discipline. And, um, you know, the left not having any. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, part, part of it is, is because there's total confusion about how, how models work um, and how they ought to be assessed. And so the, the typical kind of stance that... I just we... want to make a little intervention here yeah, and yeah. talk about like why that's the case, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why that is the case is that um, engineering discipline requires diversity of inputs, of information, mm -hmm. um, experience, either first or second down, handed down and explained, and it takes a long time to acquire, right? Models make you feel like you have worked around that. The yeah. other thing is, is that they are discursive tools. Mm -hmm. And we're in a highly technical, wildly discursive society. Yeah. That also overvalues what appears to be expertise. Yeah. Right. So putting all those things together, we can figure out how it's sort of like throwing a blanket over a sawhorse. It gives some shape to mm -hmm. the narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And it performs a type of expertise that then can be trotted out and used, as you say, coercively to mm -hmm. convince people of what's going on or what is being represented to be going on. Yeah, and uh, I, I think that's why Feyerabend is more relevant, perhaps, than he's ever been. And I mean, I, I I think people should should take the time to understand his points here because this is the process with, that's happening, right? Like even even for, at the individual kind of like activist level, like if you look at the way people engage with this stuff, it's like they'll throw single citations at each other. Like, look, well, here's a model that supports my view, you know, against you know, whatever you happen to have. And it's just, they're just straight up claims to orthodoxy, right? Like there's, there's no, it's, it's very rare anyway to, to see kind of a good faith entering into the perspective of the other that mm -hmm. involves actually understanding how their models work, coding them, you know, assessing their quality against your data sets, against their data sets. What are the problems? You know, what what actually comes out of this comparison? And, you know, if to the extent that we care about actually effective discourse that gets at the truth and is not simply, well, you know, I identify myself with this set of beliefs and therefore I have to work back from that commitment to find, you know, the modeling that supports it. If we want to move beyond that, we simply have to wrap our head around how model comparison properly done ought to look. Patrons who have heard our What the Fuck is a Fact episode in the McIntyre series, yeah, um, some of this should be resonating, mm -hmm. right? Because one of the things that he talks about is how there is no just objectively true fact without interpretation. Right. That that right. is an aristocratic folk concept Absolutely. is what he calls it. Right. Yeah. Um, and so when people are just saying, well, here's this citation, here's that citation, you know, without any real comparison or any attempt at synthesis or something like that, what they're doing is they're playing the emotivist game yep. of pseudo objectivity. Yep. 
Yeah, and and I, I think it, you know one one other thing that I would I would emphasize here is that this is not beyond the reach of uh, ordinary people, um, and indeed of of you know you, working people. You you if you don't do this for a living, it's still not beyond your reach to be able to think about this um, with a high level of rigor. And you know I'll I'll throw in some some citations in the in the show notes that you know people who are interested in can can begin delving into this a little bit. But I mean I think if that if that kind of like geometrical explanation made sense to you, there's really not that much more to model comparison in general. And the rest is kind of like mathematical details about how sampling works, but you can use someone else's sampler, right? You know, you don't, you don't have to write your own samplers, you know, this kind of thing. Like we can, we can get there. We can raise the level of discourse by putting a little bit of time into educating ourselves in these things. And this is something that I had to do, you know, like as a, as a bench worker, as a person who came from biological background, I mean, I, I just had extremely rough kinds of understandings of, of what was going on here. And, and, you know, it took me a few years just like slowly grinding on this and, and looking at, you know, formulae and stuff, but you, you know, your eyes kind of glaze over when you get to Greek characters, but you'll get used to it, you know, and once you realize that these people are all, you know, the firebendian epistemic anarchists and are just kind of doing their own things, it gets a lot easier. But, yeah. And I'll say as somebody who does not come from this world at all, and has never found this stuff a strong suit and is most familiar mathematically with the first few books in Euclid's Elements. Mm -hmm. I've slowly been acquiring this knowledge and it's possible. And I've been surprised at how much the thinking of the ancients still plays out and how some of this goes. It's totally relevant. Right. It's, so it's we totally can, relevant. you know, we can talk about how like you know, Plato's the statesman, right? Mm. And so one of the things that happens in that it dialogue, it, perhaps it is a positive teaching on what like a Socratic mode might really look like. And a lot of what they're doing is they're saying, okay, let's take thing X. Now is thing X one or many? Oh, okay, right. it's many. So what are the things there? Then they start breaking it down, right? And then they're like, okay, so then is this thing that we're calling thing X actually what we mean when we mean X now that we've looked at its constituent parts. This right. is the same thing as trying to figure out how these models work, right? So the yeah. Greeks really love comparison and polarity, mm -hmm. right? So they would yeah. take a spectrum, take extremes, sort of weigh them against each other's, right? Or they would do direct comparisons. Yeah. Is X like Y to what extent? How would we understand that? Yep. You know, these are still, th I mean, they're Lindy as fuck. They're still yep. things you need when you're yep. looking at a lot of this very refined vocabulary yep. for how this stuff is executed today. Yeah. And, and I, I would say that, you know, like geometry in particular is highly useful for thinking about parameter spaces and sampling. Like if, if you have a little bit of geometry, that'll go a long way. Um, and particularly with uh, John Skilling's um, system of nested sampling, which I'll, I'll link to in the show notes too, too much to go into here. But yeah, I, I, I think because we, we wanted to mention something actually about Malthus, um, yeah. Malthus and, and get a little bit into this because, you know, this is something that I think is, is important to both of us, Emmett, and, and is contains model ideas and also has a lot of political relevance and also is very obscure now. I mean, I think very few people uh, read Malthus anymore. Very few people read the classical liberals in general. 
mm-hmm. with in any detail. So I think it's worth worth kind of going over. Did you did you want to? Because yeah, I, yeah. So Malthus he writes a book on the human population and how he thinks it grows and how he thinks it works and what basically what are the limits to growth mm-hmm. if there are any within that right now this is importantly happening at a time before humanity really starts to be able to decouple its growth from its resource acquisition mm-hmm. right so in other words if we think about it moving up the energy ladder right from wood to coal from coal to like gas and oil um, and then from that to fission right mm-hmm. so the use of nuclear things right the lower you are in the ladder the more resources you need to provide for yourself because what you're doing is using things that are energy dilute rather than energy dense mm-hmm. so friend colleague robert bryce over at power hungry podcast which everybody should go listen to he's wonderful meredith angwin mark nelson they've all been guests here they've also been guests on his podcast. I call this Bryce's law. So if something is energy dense, it is not resource intensive. Right. right? right. The extent to which is something is energy dilute is the extent to which it's resource intensive. Right. So sunlight and wind for those who are following along here. Right. Right. They're <laughs> dilute. So They're you dilute. need a ton of land, a ton of solar powers, a ton of turbine to basically gather what you need. Yeah. Like something like a Coke can of uranium can power an American life birth to death. Right. And, and you can, you can think of the whole process of like, you know, dinosaurs wandering around eating plants and then dying and then being compressed into fossil fuels as a, as a means of um, concentrating solar energy. Right. 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 That's, that's in fact what, why, why, you know, fossil fuels are useful. Is because mm-hmm. they're extremely energy dense because of that process, right? So. Right, exactly. And so where does that bring us with Malthus? Well, Malthus is looking at a time when resources are harder to come by, things are energy dilute, and he is an aristocrat who's terrified that there will basically be too many people and resources will run out. Now, there are people later on called Malthusians who take some of his modeling ideas and if you remember back to the beginning of this episode, when we were talking about how the COVID modeling went and the SEIRs, mm-hmm. yeah. people adapted to problems of resource scarcity by moving up the energy ladder. And so some of the Malthusian assumptions didn't actually play out. However, right. they're ideologically convenient for people who are anti-industry or who are anti-human and who like to wor- argue for things like mass forced sterilization or who are anti-natalist, right? So your Paul Ehrlichs, you know, your people that come out of the 60s new left that are deeply romantic about these types of things, they're all basically anti-human. And the way they look at it is in order to maintain our resources, we have to reduce the population, right? And a different perspective would take into account moving up the energy ladder, as a way to take on more, which isn't to say that there is a such thing as limitless growth. It is hard to prove that there is or there is not. But what we can say is that it does not necessarily operate in the same confines that were originally assumed. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I think, you know, that that's a good summary of the sort of contemporary deployment of, of Malthus. And I, I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm going to mount a bit of a, a defense of Malthus here because I think he's he's been very uh, hard done by, particularly by later scholarship and, and by, frankly, modelers who have adapted some of his early kind of mathematical suggestions without at all taking into account his later modifications of his, his thesis. Um, so maybe maybe we can just talk about that for for a bit. Yeah, please um, do. Yeah, so I I mean, you know, I think the first thing to understand about uh, Malthus um, is that Malthus is responding to uh, a current in English political philosophy that is is really epitomized by someone named William Godwin. Okay, and so his his essay on population is directly a response to Godwin's thought. I believe he mainly his book Political Justice is what he's he's responding to. Okay, so Godwin is a really odd kind of figure, but I, I mean we can think of him as sort of like a radical anarcho-rationalist. So he believes sort of like a Condorcet type. Exactly. And so, so this is, that's another kind of figure that, that Malthus is, is responding to, right? So, you know, this is, this kind of idea is that like, you know, maximum utility, happiness, liberty, so on, is achieved by individuals dispassionately, you know, without any reference to emotion, exercising their own reason, free of government influence or coercion, and slowly kind of influencing their peers to more and more accurate and truthful assessments of the way the world is, okay? And so he has at the limit of this process, which he believes is would be political justice, right? He says in his, in his book by the same title, there will be no war, no crimes, no administration of justice as it is called, and no government. Besides this, there will be neither disease, anguish, melancholy, nor resentment. Every man will seek with ineffable ardor the good of all. Mind will be active and eager, uh, yet never disappointed. Okay, and so this this actually goes kind of into almost like a like a trans or like post-humanism. So he he kind of like he he believes in mind over matter, like really just explicitly. Like we're gonna end death by becoming so friggin' rational that we can't die. Like we we will become angels more or less, right? He's so, like, a, what, what were the guys called? The Soviet um, cosmists or whatever that were also <laughs> like, no, we can totally just like, we will be liberated from death within the Soviet Union because yeah. we will scientifically progress Th that's out it. of it. Yeah. That's it, right? So, so you you run into this in in various kinds of political currents, right? Like, there's always some guy who likes this. I mean, the, the English seem to be more susceptible to this for some reason, but you know, so like he he kind of he has this ultimate perfected state of humankind that he's he's arguing for is these kind of like like he de he doesn't like marriage because it involves emotion and like you know it's irrational, right? So like uh, our perfected state is going to be this like sexless, like immortal, like perfectly rational. This is like Nick Land without the angst. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, he's that's... like you'll be a computer you'll throw yeah. your data at another computer it'll throw data back at you yeah and it'll just be chill yeah 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 i hadn't thought about it but it is kind of like an accelerationist type of, type yeah. of view right yeah so i mean now the, the important 
part here, I mean, I think is that both Godwin and Malthus are utilitarians. Okay, like that's that's the, the the classical liberal framework in which they're arguing. They're both liberals. They're both utilitarians. Okay, but they have this this dispute because Malthus is a pessimist regarding human perfectibility. He thinks this isn't going to happen, and. For me, I side with Malthus. <laughs> like, I think it's yeah, a little bit unlikely. I, I think he's yeah. right about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so his his whole intellectual project, I mean, I, I really think has to be understood as a response to this, like, very radical, like, anarchist kind of view of of human perfectibility, right? And so, I I want to just read a passage here from a, a paper about this that I I think really gets at some of like the weird kind of obfuscation that happens later and the, the weird interpretations that get assigned to Malthus. And, 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 and before you do, I just want yeah. to make a reading suggestion to people. Yeah, absolutely. So I've read parts of this book. I have heard it is the best book of Malthus and it is not only critical of him. It's mm -hmm. called Untime Untimely Prophet. It's by a guy named Mayhew. He goes into what Malthus thought and what his legacy is. And he does a good scholarly job of being fair. Mm. Yeah, and and I mean, I think I think honestly, like Malthus deserves that. Like he's a he's a much more rigorous thinker than Godwin was. And this kind of like there there's a tendency still. I mean, for people who actually know who Godwin is, I mean, most people don't. Like mm -hmm. most people actually don't know that like Malthus anymore. I think that Malthus was responding primarily to Godwin. But for people who do know who Godwin is, like typically it's like, okay, Godwin is like the good leftist and Malthus is like, hates poor people, hates blacks. Like, you know, wants to, <laughs> yeah. no, no black planet, right? Like that's extremely his, problematic. Yeah, extremely yeah. problematic, right? Like he's, that's that's him. And and I think that that's, that's not the case, right? And so William Peterson- No, and also people like to do a thing where they will take him and say, well, his- ideas were in help used to justify some of what happens in India, which is horrific levels of famine. And right. of course the Irish famine and what was going on there. But that's also, if you want to do that, then you would have to do, and I'm assuming that the person that would want to do that is probably a leftist, then you're going to have to do that for Marx and the Soviet Union as well. And right, you can't say, oh, it's unfair to do that and then turn around and do it to Malthus, right? We yeah, would need it, different standards to evaluate how influence works and how thinkers should be evaluated. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I think as, as, so I'm going to, I'm going to read um, from William Peterson's paper here, which is entitled the Malthus Godwin debate. Okay. So what he says about this is, so the political freedom to which all utilitarians adhered would, according to another fundamental tenet, give free play to the natural progress of things towards improvement, as Adam Smith phrased it. Since it was the issue of man's perfectibility that first brought them into opposition, everyone knows that Godwin and Malthus at first differed in this respect. I'd say not everyone knows anymore, but perhaps in 1971 they did. But few seem to be aware that both moved towards a more central position. So he's describing, like, Malthus and Godwin were talking all the time, having many d debates, and Malthus moderated his position quite a bit over time, and actually so did Godwin. So he says, in Godwin's later and more temperate view, as we have noted, perfectibility meant only man's capacity for indefinite betterment. 
Malthus, on the other hand, became increasingly concerned with the future improvement of society, the progress of mankind toward happiness, improvement and civilization, the further progress of wealth, and so on. Indeed, it would be difficult to designate a writer of this period who lacked this faith in human progress, or who differed very much in how the progress was to be defined. In most discussions today, however, not only are these underlying similarities passed over, but Godwin and Malthus are pictured respective, uh, as respectively left and right representatives of their period. So the two names are used to symbolize two types of social action. The Neo-Malthusians who concentrate on reducing fertility versus the Neo-Godwinians who try to improve the social environment. Neither designation actually is very apt. Malthus, not Godwin, was the activist who demanded a whole series of radical reforms. Godwin's fantasies about a future society peopled by immortals who would neither labor nor indulge in sex represented a half-secularized Garden of Eden. But in fact, apart from argument by himself and a few like-minded philosophers, he had no means of eliminating evil or initiating social change. Godwin's stance towards day-to-day -to -day politics was typically either reactionary, so he's against the extension of suffrage, he was against mass education, which Malthus favored, um, or he was apolitical, like he was against any kind of organization, or like he, he was against cooperation. He, he felt cooperation was was Yeah, you need to be a computer and throw your data at each other. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so his, his examples of remedial action always excluded any analysis of social cooperation that might have achieved better institutions. So why should Malthus have become the particular target of these men? So he's, he's here talking about like Marx and other people who took aim at Malthus, right? And their present day counterparts. One reason I suggest is that radicals generally reserve their harshest epithets, not for those who have other goals, but for those who try to achieve similar goals without calling for apocalyptic means. Mm -hmm. Marx treated Ricardo with the greatest respect as a target he thought he could hit accurately, but wrote with vicious and often ignorant malice of Malthus, whose analysis of the economy was much closer to Marx uh, and whose principle of population in its most simplistic version, Ricardo had incorporated into his general theory. <laughs> Similarly, the Malthus of preventative checks, Godwin could answer by pointing to man's capacity to curb his emotions with reason, but the Malthus who had brought moral restraint into his theory. so. Uh, Malthus, in, in the second and later editions of this essay, he concedes that Godwin is correct that, you know, uh, geometric growth of the population is not guaranteed, that people yeah. have agency, that they can choose how many kids to have and how to behave and this kind of thing. So Malthus actually incorporates... Right, you can have innovations, theory. you can have discoveries. There, there are cultural factors that matter. Right, and I also think, maybe this is too soon, um, to do this are you going to read more from this because i'll let you go i'll just i'll just finish this so yeah. so uh the malthus who had brought moral restraint into his theory and thus raised the question of just how rational man can be induced to come godwin saw as a more formidable opponent just because he was closer so this is that that's uh peterson's assessment of like why this kind of weird yeah. narcissism of small that. differences right? yeah indeed. that's the yeah indeed. right and i think that's we're taking it now what I think is very interesting is how they both become totems for left and right. Yeah. So we should bring it tie that into our modeling discussion. Yes. Right? Because the way we use left and right can often be an unhelpful model for understanding previous historical events, the people who participated them 
in them and the people and or the people who were thinking and writing about them. Right. Great point. So a good example might be Rousseau. I don't know where he would fit today. Right. Uh, There are certain elements of him that we could say are incredibly progressive or he's very canny about uh, institutional ossification in the interests of the elite. You know, at the same time, he loved Sparta and the constitutional (laughs) suggestion he wrote for Poland looked a lot like his idea of what Sparta was, right? Right. Very intentionally. Or we could take another thinker, uh, even more controversial, would be Carl Schmitt, Mm. the jurist of the Reich, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. especially some of his pre and post World War II writings, where it's very clear, uncomfortably clear that this right wing jurist is also a thinker of peace. Mm It is very surprising that one of his condemnations of the humanitarian impulse is that it paradoxically gives you the opportunity to dehumanize your enemies. Hmm. Whereas a typical nationalist ethic of military respect means that you at least admit that man is dangerous and you Mm. ought to respect your enemies for Mm. being men and therefore dangerous. Right. Right. So, you know, he also has some other ideas like that. So again, that is, if we're going back into the modeling thing, right? That is us taking walks up the mound to see how the data fits and what lies outside of it and what seems like a weird outlier that might make us need to adjust or compare or have a different model, right? The uh, terminology that comes out of the French Revolution might not be helpful for anything that happens before it and might not map on directly to everything that happens afterwards. Right. Right. So let's, we can, we can continue this with, with talking specifically about Malthus's models now, right? Because mm-hmm. Malthus, I mean, Godwin comes after Malthus initially because his, his first version of his essay on population is, is very pessimistic and relies entirely on two, two models, right? So his model of population growth is geometric growth, right? So doubling, mm-hmm. doubling, doubling, doubling. So exponential growth, right? And his mo- basically the constraint that he puts on growth is agricultural product productivity, yeah. which he says is in the best case going to be a, a linear process of growth. Obviously, the the factors that you've mentioned about uh, energy density, as well as you know, we can point to things like the Green Revolution as as being kind of disconfirmations of that. Not that I think we should, you know. Well, like you said, we don't want to toss out an old model. Because if we hold on to it, it will make our current models that much more robust right. for having and, and, kept this one in the fold. Yeah, and we need we need to think about this carefully because, in particular, the the exponential growth model has wormed its way into the fundamental discourse of almost all ecological evolutionary, uh, biological, as well as as much of the kind of like demographic, well, it's at the the core of much of the demographic literature as well, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to understand what's going on with this, right? And, you know, this is this is perhaps no surprise, you know, given Malthus's context, right? So Darwin 
reported that you know he he read uh, Malthus's essay kind of for for leisure. Uh, this is the kind of thing that Darwin liked to do. So he says uh, in uh, on the origin of species, a struggle for existence inevitably follows from the high rate at which all organic beings tend to increase. Every being must suffer destruction during some period of its life, and during some season or occasional year. Otherwise, on the principle of geometrical increase, its numbers would quickly become so inordinately great that no country could support the species. Okay, so this is this is an assumption of evolutionary theory from the very beginning from Darwin and Darwin has no explanation for this. Okay. Mm. It's an assumption. It's an axiom of evolution. Okay. And this, this gets kind of glossed as like the striving organism. Okay. Agency is an important concept uh, here, um, but it's assumed by evolutionary theory. It's not explained by evolutionary theory. Mm-hmm. So this principle of uh, geometric or exponential growth growth is, is, very widely and explicitly viewed as like the fundamental axiom of evolutionary population biology. And so most textbooks will start with exponential growth formula. Even if they don't actually nominate Malthus, you will see Malthus's model at the start of all of these textbooks. Okay. And Darwinian selection is taken to operate as a function of differences between the Malthusian parameters of different lineages. Okay. So different lineages which have which are let's say generated by different malthusian models will have different fecundity right so when we talk about fecundity or reproductive success what we're talking about is a malthusian model so we can look to some of the the textbooks of uh, evolutionary biology for just confirmation of this ginsburg and colvin in their textbooks say a statement that will serve as a foundational principle must be precise and informative. We know of only one such unanimously agreed upon principle in ecology, the Malthusian law of exponential growth, a simple statement stressing the multiplicative character of reproduction. Okay, so this is, ecologists are obsessed with laws. I don't know why they... they, they... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they just love this idea that there are laws of ecology. Like f- for me anyway, I mean, my, my personal belief about this, like I don't, I don't really care about the, like the law status, you know, models expressing scientific laws, which are said to be like actually existing, like fundamental properties of existence. These are like any other model, right? Like, you know, to quote Deckard, they're either a benefit or a hazard, right? If they're mm-hmm. a benefit, it's not my problem. Um, <laughs> so, you know, a law is, is simply a, a claim to orthodoxy, right? Like that's mm-hmm. what's going on here. But there's been a lot of debate about this because, okay, so this is what um, uh, Lockwood in a, an article called When Logic Fails Ecology has to say about this. So empirically, there are no natural populations that demonstrate a sustained Malthusian growth pattern. Textbooks on population ecology generally begin with a logical argument to derive Malthusian growth. While these texts will sometimes uh, provide a sample data set that appears to support exponential growth for a very short period of time, it is important to note that these data sets are presented without measurement error associated with them, thereby weakening the argument. Clearly, the factual basis is in trouble when, as was put forth by Berryman, the law holds for a set of conditions that are factually impossible, namely unlimited resources, right? So without substantial evidence for Malthusian growth in natural populations, it could be argued that the law operates 
but is hidden by numerous processes that also operate on populations, such as interactions with other populations or environmental stochasticity. So therefore, the most straightforward counterfactual should be that in the absence of these extrinsic factors, Malthusian growth will occur. However, a vast array of population models exist that describe the dynamics of a single population, and yet no exponential growth occurs. So for example, the logistic model, which is your typical kind of S-curve, um, the Ricker model, Beverton-Holt model, self-organized uh, criticality, percolation, these are other models of population growth, okay? So none of those, which are all better explanations for population growth than Malthus, none of those have Malthusian exponential growth, okay? So it could be argued that these models are conceptual counterfactuals, but they're developed based on empirical data sets that operate as empirical counterfactuals. So in this case, there's not even logical support for the counterfactual claim for exponential growth. Okay, so this is been fairly widely noted at this point that like the, Malthus's basic model about population growth is absolutely everywhere. People treat it as though it's a law that like, you know, all populations do this, that like, you know, people just say, oh, like it's human nature to like maximize um, uh, resource intensivity or something like this. Like it, you'll often see this uh, on the left as like, you know, capital is like an autonomous uh, system that just continually accumulates and- uh, it's, it's even called extractivism. Yeah, <laughs> right. And, and you know, uh, like uh, entropy maximization, right? Mm -hmm. Like human societies are entropy maximization devices. Like there's nothing to- No, to... but there are interesting models that come out of like say public choice economics. Yeah that look at things like the tragedy of the commons or whatever. Sure. And are like, no, actually people figure out ways to manage these things together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even, you know, in the case of bacteria, like if you're, if you're a bench worker like me, do you use Malthus's growth curve in order to figure out when you need to come into the lab to pick up your or harvest your flask of bacteria before they all die? No, you don't. You use a logistic model because it's more accurate. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that this is at the, the fundamental kind of basis is, is uh, of all of these bodies of thought is actually quite odd. Um, and, you know, when we look at like if, just look at bacteria, right, like, OK, well, they don't have culture. They're not that complicated. They should follow kind of like Malthus's um, growth curves. Actually, they, they do all kinds of things like they have quorum sensing. They talk to each other. They, you know have their semiotic they they exchange mm -hmm. information about the the amount of resources that are in the environment and the kinds of activities that they should undertake collectively <laughs> you know? yeah these are microorganisms so you know it, th this is something that i think has very deep and fundamental implications for the way that we think about society um and we don't have a lot of uh model alternatives that are circulating that we could use to, okay, like for instance, this is this is something that's often pointed out about the limits to growth model, right? The limits to growth model is is kind of a Malthusian perspective in the sense that, or an early Malthusian perspective in the sense that it makes no provision for social change, mm -hmm. right? So just like the system's going to continue going on forever until collapse, right? And there's there's no feedback which will cause you know like growth to slow or you know. Um, uh, energy use to change or any of these kinds of things, right? Um, and so, you know, like the, the implications for this are pretty dire uh, if we're looking for ways to explain 
why other kinds of political programs might be more successful in you know a world with finite resources. Mm -hmm. So I, I think both both of us are are very concerned about that aspect of this of Malthus's legacy. Right. Exactly. You know, and the way that's going to get manipulated, and the way what passes for a conception of social change is going to be laundered through either end of his legacy, right? Yeah. And what we have to do is, as you said, increase our engineering discipline to deepen our appreciation of these things and to also, frankly, accept a certain level of noise and tension in what we're dealing with, which is the real world. That yeah. is both a boon and burden for anything yep. that you plan to do. You know, I talked before about how the ancients still have some ideas, the way the standard argumentative discursive patterns that we see fall out of the first democracy, Athens, are still relevant today. And I just think I'll end it with this. Bad ideas still enjoy the Lindy effect. Yep. Right? Yep. Mistakes still enjoy the Lindy effect, right? And that's something we have to engage in. For new listeners who haven't heard me bring this up, I'm pulling that from Taleb. And the Lindy effect is basically things that have been around for a while will continue to be around for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's basically it. And so that's part of why Mike and I wanted to talk about Malthus's legacy to both complicate it, situate it, and to help us appreciate exactly where we are now. And I'm thinking that's pretty much a good place to end it because we have remarkably, I think, handled almost everything that we talked about before we hit record. Yeah. So, Mike, thanks so much for coming on. I learned a lot. I'm excited to edit this one because it means I get to re-listen to it. Pleasure as always. Thanks for having me.
tragedy If you could keep up the pace Then maybe Fuck it Yeah, it was only seven days.